Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. We're continuing in our, our series, really asking Jesus to, to come down, that the, the presence of the King would be visible, would be um, impactful and powerful in our midst. And we're asking that what is true of the kingdom, because this is how Jesus taught us to pray, Your king, His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're continuing that. And what we're looking at today, because we're, we're staying with Acts 2 and Acts 4, where we see really the best manifestations, the, the most powerful kind of manifestations of the kingdom in the church. And so we want to look at that and, and see really what, what is the spirit of the king when he is present? What is the spirit of the kingdom when the kingdom is present? So we, we take a portion of Peter's Pentecost sermon. And this is at at the end of the sermon, and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And you can kind of tell by this next reaction that these words that Jesus, uh, of Jesus being preached by Peter have cut uh, the audience to the quick, has cut to their heart. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter's response is, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we look at this incredible Pentecost experience that began because of a message um, that Peter gave to the people that day, and 3,000 were added to their number. We want to look at the fact that everything that's going on in our world is really about God disassembling. Yes, COVID-19 is uh, a source, uh, and I think when you see something that is a part of a sickness like that is, that has the threat of death, that you really are talking about you know, a satanic action, a demonic activity in our midst. But, but even when Satan is, is at work in an impactful way, God has promised us as Christians that he will turn what is evil into our good. And so there's a disassembling of our personal lives. There's a deconstructing of the church. And last week we actually talked about it in this way, that God has reserved the right to shake when he comes down, when his presence is in our midst, that he has reserved the right to shake what can be shaken. And when we're holding on to, either in church or community or in our individual lives, when we're holding on to for security and we're holding on for our happiness or we're holding on for a sense of fulfillment, things that can be shaken, then God reserves the right to shake them until we get to the place where we realize, hey, I've got to hold on to what cannot be shaken and 
the only thing that cannot be shaken is that which is of the kingdom of God. And so we begin to look a little more deeply into Peter's message because if we're going to be a church, if you're going to be an individual that, you know, is not just going to join the thousands of cultural institutions that are ineffective in our country or in this season, then it's vital that we engage, that we strain all that we are to think about the church biblically, to think about the church as God wants us to think about the church, and to envision our future in in terms of exactly what the Bible says the church is and, and what the kingdom is and what it is to experience the king. Because if we can think that way, we can see what God wants us to be. And what I've, I've really emphasized is that the central fact of the church is not its programs or even how excellent its music or its teaching might be. Uh, the central essence, the central fact is the church where God dwells, where God meets with us in all his transcendent love and light and fire and majesty. And so he's, he's shaking us. He's shaking away even the, our ability to meet together. He's shaking away the resources that we have as a church because he wants us to come down to this one thing. Lord, it is all about your presence. It's about meeting with you, of being the people of God in the presence of God. And so that's really what the Bible says about the church. And, and many of us can see throughout history that the church has known this, that the church is not a program, it's not busyness, it's not work, but it's his presence. Uh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, and he wrote a great hymn on the church. Glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. This is one of the things that I would really love for each of us to realize that when we are together as the church, we are together as the city of our God. We are Mount Zion, the the mountain where God dwells in all of his fullness, but yet it's a mountain where we can touch him and he touches us. Newton's talking about the church, that we are more than just a gathering of individuals. We are the city of our God come together. He's talking about the church when he says, He whose word cannot be broken formed thee, the church, for his own abode. I, I guess in a, in a, just in an application of this, is going forward, priority has to be given to being a people who not only welcome the presence of God, but are hungry for the presence of God and attract the presence of God in a way that is solid, timeless. A way that we go, this is the presence of God. This is his church because this is where God dwells. God wants to dwell with his church in New City, New York. That's his his great desire, is that we would have a hunger for his presence, and then he would satisfy our hunger in New City. Well, (laughs) when we look at this and we begin to 
look at this message that Peter preached in Acts, which was the birth of the church in the New Testament. So you've got this little group of people. Jesus, when he left, he, he only had a small handful of people in the upper room on Pentecost. This is what, 120 people. That's not a mega church. That's a small group of people. But then God comes down on that group of people. And one of the ones upon whom the, the anointing rested, uh, the, the fullness of the Spirit rested, the Spirit of Christ began to preach through, through Peter. And this remarkable message was historical. It was on Pentecost. And he preaches it. And the church is formed from the message. 3,000 souls were gathered that first day. And it was through this presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that you and I, seeing this, getting hungry for it, can realize, hey, it is supposed to happen every time we come together because we're the dwelling place of the presence of God. And we, we're not to be people who just take that for granted and say, yeah, well, yeah of course the church is a dwelling place of the presence of God. Really and truly, we're to be people that when we notice a diminishing of his presence, that we throw everything else aside and say, we don't exist for all these things. We exist to be the dwelling place of the presence of God. And if the kind of the tank is empty of that presence, then we have no reason for existence. None of our programs have any great impact without his presence. None of our activities have any real effectiveness without his presence. And so to experience a time of a lack of the presence of God doesn't mean we get busier. Doesn't mean that we do more. It means that we stop everything and say, Lord, if your presence doesn't go with us, we can't do anything. Just like Moses did. Well, it was his presence that formed the church and we're saying, if we can do this again, if we can say, Lord, it, we need your presence in our midst, not in a general way, not in a, a mediocre way, but we really take it seriously and say, this is not only what we're going to build our church on, we're going to build our lives on it. Because in a way, if the only place this presence is coming is when we're together, then it's not going to be nearly as effective if your home, your apartment, your workplace, your school becomes a place where the manifest presence of God is coming through your, your not only hunger for it, but your experience of his presence. When that happens, there's health. There's vitality. There's a spiritual generator for everything else that God is calling us to do. You see, in a way, with the gospel, you can't really really live out the gospel and not care for the poor. You, you can't live out the gospel and, and, and be satisfied in any way with social or racial injustice. But, but I'm saying that the power source for actually accomplishing transformation in our society and having the resources that we need in order to see lasting change and, 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 and more than just regulations and restrictions, but to see heart change, is that we ourselves have to be those who are, who are experiencing the spiritual generator 
of God's presence and that we're moving into our assignments knowing that he is with us and that we are in alignment with him. So here's this message that formed the church. Let's look at this closely because in this message we begin to see how we get ourselves in alignment with the spiritual generator of God's presence, both as individuals and as a church. So Peter says this to them, their hearts are broken as their sins are revealed, as conviction comes upon the people. And they say, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's a There's a a two-part to this message. We're going to look at both parts. But the first part we're going to look at is really that what Peter is speaking to the people is the same message that Jesus spoke when he came out of the wilderness and began to preach the gospel. In Mark 1.15, he says, repent and believe. Now, of course, I'm noticing, and you can notice, that that Peter said, repent and be baptized, instead of repent and believe. But to Peter and to the apostles, baptism was the step that, that outwardly symbolized that you had put your trust in Christ and you had separated yourself from sin, and now you belong to Jesus. As a matter of fact, baptism for them was symbolizing your union with Christ, that you died with Christ, you were raised with Christ, and now you would live in that faith in Christ. And so it's really the same message, a little different uh, manifestation in terms of the baptism, but the idea is always this, is that if you're going to come into a relationship with God that is a right relationship, the first thing you're going to have to do is to say that the life you had before, whether it was religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, is that you're going to have to say it doesn't work and it's not going to be my life anymore and it's not going to be my source anymore. And so you come into this place where you say, I'm turning away from this source of life and now I'm turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his intercession for me now before the Father, I'm turning to that as the way that I will receive the source of life and he will be my Savior and he will be my Lord. And it's a trust, particularly as Peter's talking about stepping into the obedience of baptism, it's a trust that you actually are experiencing your sins be put away. And your sins no longer is a barrier between you and a relationship with God, an intimate relationship with God. And it's interesting because, because a lot of people at times confuse and think there's repentance and there's faith. But really, true repentance and faith are one thing. You see, it's a repentant faith. In neither of them are you contributing to your salvation. But with both of them, you are recognizing your need for salvation. That's repentance. And you're you're recognizing the means by which you receive your salvation. That's faith. So it's a repentant faith. It's not a works righteousness in any way. It's a means, not a cause. 
You turn from your old ways. You begin to rest and you begin to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, you see, true repentance is you make him your only hope, your only salvation in life and in death. So in a way, you're talking about repentance and belief or repentance and faith as two sides of the same coin. And this is how we really receive. We come into a relationship with God through Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, so what we see is that this message of repentance and faith, of receiving Christ, it creates the church. Because you see, Peter says, when a person receives Christ as Savior and Lord, then they now are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is, you see, this is the two part of the message that created the church. The response of the, of the people, the response of you and I to what God has done is we throw off any other way of coming into right relationship with God. We take hold of the relationship that God is offering through Jesus Christ. And then we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We receive the gift of the Spirit of Christ. <laughs> that's, that's the whole Christian life summed up. That's the whole church summed up. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. And every aspect of it needs to be looked at so that we understand it fully. So, why does God offer to us the only way that we can come into right standing with him, he does so because of grace. And all of this is offered as a gift. It is something to which no contribution on our part can even make us acceptable or make us right with God. And then faith itself is not a work, friends. It's not something that causes you to deserve this salvation, but rather faith is a means by which you receive. It's the open hand that says, I, nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. So these, these three things, grace, the gift, faith, this is the key to the spiritual generator. This is the key to spiritual power and vitality. I want to go a little more deeply into this because I've, I feel like people haven't really, many of the people that I speak to who are, who are in a way trying to be good Christians, what I find that they don't understand is they don't understand grace. And because they don't understand grace, they even see repentance or faith as something they have to work at or something they have to perfect or something they have to in some way, make it so perfect that, it, that it's acceptable. And if we're going to talk about this aright, if we're going to really become the church where God dwells personally, then we have to be a church that understands grace. So grace and free gift are actually synonyms. They're virtual synonyms. The grace of which the Bible speaks is God is this amazing disposition of God where, where he knows that you're a sinner. 
And He is righteous. And He is holy. But He has decided. And grace is why He has decided. He has decided to justify, to pardon, to forgive sinners. This is the disposition of God is God's grace. Now, one of the things that, that is so important that you understand, and, and this is somewhat theological and somewhat deep, but stay with me on this because it is foundational to understanding how to relate to God every day of your life. God is not gracious to you because Christ died for you. God does not become gracious to you just because Christ died for you. Rather, you must understand that the death of Christ and the offer of Christ is because God is gracious to you and He has been gracious and He will be gracious. He began being gracious to you before Christ died, before the foundation of the world. God has always dealt with you from His grace. It works like this. If you tend to think that the reason God has become gracious to you now is because Christ has died for you and somehow because you have put your faith in Christ, now God will be gracious to you. It comes out of a, a wrong understanding that, that, Christ, that what Christ did on the cross was to persuade a rather unwilling God to become gracious to a dreadful sinner. This is really important. This is important even for understanding the whole Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of people will say the Old Testament God is the angry God and the New Testament God is the gracious God as if they were two different gods. And that is not the case whatsoever. Do you understand? God does not love you because Christ died for you. God loved you before Christ died for you. Look at John 3.16. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you understand? This is a love that, that is before the cross. A love before Christ died. This is a love for sinners. This is the grace that God is dealing. It's not a... It's not a poverty spirit grace. It's not a, 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 a trickle of grace. It is the very heart of God. And one way we need to look at this, and again, I know it's theological, but it's so important practically. What I'm saying is this. God's grace toward us did not begin at the cross. It does come to consummation in the cross of Christ. And, and of course, it is the greatest expression of God's grace. But it, the cross itself is only because of the gracious love of the Father for Christ's people that, that was before the cross even. And he sent the cross into the world. He sent Christ into the world to go to the cross. Because God doesn't just wear grace. God is grace. Let me put it another way. There is actually no such thing as grace. Because grace isn't a thing. 
Grace isn't something that's outside of God that he passes on to Jesus so Jesus can pass it on to you. It's never something external to God's being. If God is gracious to you, friend, like he's being gracious to you and me in Christ, then he's gracious because that's who he is. And he's gracious to us at the very center of his being. You see, God is grace, and grace is God. This is not a commodity. It's who He is. When He is showing you grace, He is showing you His heart. He's showing you His character. He's not acting in a way where He puts aside His character and then is gracious in spite of you. When he's showing you his grace, he's showing you the reality of his very nature and his very character. Now, here's, this becomes even more interesting because it's enough to say that that he justifies us by his grace. But Paul, when he's talking about the justification that God gives to us in the righteousness of Christ through or by faith, He also talks about it as a free gift. And even here, as we talk about Peter's sermon, he's talking about the free gift of the Holy Spirit. This is why I want to explain this in depth to you, because you have to understand the idea of a gift from God. It's free. There's a redundancy here. He's talking about the grace of God, but he also says it's a free gift. And so this is kind of a blessed Repetition or redundancy in all language that that God in his gracious disposition of mercy sends his son Jesus to be my savior. And it it comes in to me in such a way at absolutely no cost to myself. So so here is is both Peter and, and Paul when they're explaining the actions of a gracious God And they say he does these things as a free gift, which means it comes to you in its fullness and in all of its wonder, but it is at no cost to you. So coming into right standing with God, coming into intimacy with God in terms of salvation, we receive it as a free gift to which you and I contribute absolutely nothing. Oh, please, would you get this? You see, repentance and faith are a means by which we receive the free gift. But they come to you in such a way that you have contributed nothing. And they come to you in such a way that they cost you nothing. But here's the issue. Here's the difference between true repentance and false repentance. False repentance is I'm afraid I'm going to go to hell, so I'm going to choose choose Christianity as a religion so that I can avoid hell or I can avoid punishment because I'm afraid of punishment. I'm afraid of death. And so I'll choose Christianity thinking it's at great cost to myself because now I've got to leave behind my life of maybe my happiness in drinking, my happiness in premarital or extramarital sex. And I'm saying, oh, it's costing me so much. 
Do you see, friends, if it's costing you, it's not repentance. Because you haven't seen the futility of that other way of living, and you're saying, well, I don't want to go to hell, so I'll take the cost of becoming a Christian. Let me tell you, friends, becoming a Christian is no cost to you. It is all a cost to God. And until we get that, it's not repentance. Now, I understand when people say that in the Christian life, you kind of have to repent over and over and over again. And I understand that in this sense. There's no way when you first become a Christian or when you first come to Jesus, there is no way that you understand all the things you're having to turn from. All the little loyalties that have hooks in your soul. And so the Holy Spirit has to come in as a gift to really begin to show you what you are turning from and what you are receiving. But here, as I have been in this faith for a long time, is I realized a true repentance is actually a kind of one-time thing. The reason, I'm not saying it, it all happens at once, but I'm saying when you really, really repent, it's because you see that doesn't work. That has no value. That's not worth my life. If you've repented of something or you've said you've repented of something just because you got caught doesn't mean you have a change of heart. Doesn't really mean that you've stopped being hooked to the thing you got caught doing. Sadly to say, I've been in many situations where pastors have been caught in moral failure. And of course, when they realize they got caught, you know, they think, I'm going to lose my ministry, I could lose my marriage, I could lose my family, I could lose my, you know, my way of making a living, all these things. But it doesn't mean that they really have lost that hook to sexual immorality as a way of getting not only pleasure, but of being a source of life. See, real repentance isn't the kind of repentance where I say, well, it's going to cost too much to do this, so I'm going to at least try not to do that anymore. Real repentance is when you recognize that's killing me. That's destroying my heart. That's no source of spiritual generator. And you begin with no cost to yourself saying, I take hold of what cost Jesus everything. You see, that's real repentance and that's real trust. Is when I no longer put any stock in what used to give me life. And my life is now found in Jesus Christ. The other thing that makes repentance and grace difficult for most of us is we really believe that if we have anything good in our life or anything of any value, we're supposed to earn it. And so there's a, there's a kind of reaction to the grace of God that says, let me do something to earn it. Let me do something even that will pay you back for what you've done to me. To actually be in the place where we say, nothing in my hands I bring, nothing 
can I do to receive this? But yet I have received it in its fullness, the acceptance and the acceptability that God provides through Jesus Christ. And God speaks to us. If you say to God, I want to earn this, or God, I want to pay you back, then here's the way God speaks. He says, my dear child, will you not realize that not all the silver and gold in the universe could in any way compensate me for the death of my son? You cannot afford him. You cannot afford this. This is why I think it's so essential that we understand grace. That is absolutely free. You don't contribute a single thing. Why is that? Because you can't afford it. You can't compensate the God of the universe, the Father of light, for the death of his son. You can't afford salvation in Christ. It has to come to you as an absolutely free gift. And unless our church and our personal lives are founded on this, we will keep trying to be the church that is trying to earn God's favor. We keep trying to be the church that compares favorably to a lost world instead of being the church who knows we only exist because of His grace. And we are only the church because it's a free gift. And it will change if we get this mindset. It not only changes the way I look at myself, it, looks at, it changes everything about the way I look at others. If my only standing before God is because of a free gift and I contributed nothing, then anybody else, any culture, any socioeconomic level status, any generational status, nothing excludes a person from a free gift except the person's unwillingness to repent of what they had before because you've got to let go of what's in your hand to receive the free gift with the open hand of faith. And we will treat the world and we will treat each other so differently if we understand grace and the gift and faith. Think about how the... the parable of the, the tax collector and the Pharisee played out. It wasn't the worthiness of the tax collector. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal son comes home and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm not worthy to be called your son. <laughs> That's basically what we're saying when we repent. And then he gives us he basically, in the parable of the prodigal son, he gives us sonship. You know, the cost of what it is to be restored to the father's house in the prodigal of the parable son, uh, uh, parable of the prodigal son, is there's a lavishness of the grace that the father gives. You know, he, he butchers the the fatty calf and throws a party. He gives a precious ring. He puts a beautiful robe on. And you begin to realize as you're receiving what you do not deserve, it is tough on the heart. 
particularly a sinful or prideful heart, to receive the grace of the Father. There's something that says, I've got to do something. I can't just receive this lavishness, this freeness, this bounty of his grace. And yet it flows down upon the sinner, down, down. Eventually, though, eventually, you realize, I could never have done anything to earn this. This is one of the lines I love that I read. I eventually find that instinct to do something to earn my salvation is suffocated. Come on, let this happen. To earn my salvation is suffocated in the drowning ocean of God's grace and mercy towards me. Now, Peter says that in the same way God's gift of grace gives you salvation, now that gift pours his Holy Spirit upon you. Your repentance and your faith do not earn the Spirit. He is a gift. Now the only reason I say that is because I continually meet people who don't know where they stand in the Christian faith and they say things like, well, I don't really, you know, I know you're saved by your effort. Uh, you know, you're not saved by your efforts or your good deeds. You're saved by faith alone. But then they'll say something like this, but I don't know whether my faith is good enough. And so they'll look inside to their own capacity for faith and they'll go, it doesn't seem very strong. It doesn't seem very pure. Come on. It's repentance and faith that receive the gift. Your repentance and faith don't have to be pure enough to earn it then it wouldn't be a gift. Let me put it another way. It's the fact of your repentant faith, not the purity, that brings in the gift. And if you're worried and you're always saying, you know, I don't know if I repented enough, I don't know if I have enough faith or whatever it is, let me clear that up for you right now. You will never have repented enough because you and I have an incredible ability to be blind to the loyalties we still have to things that are not of the grace of God. And so the Spirit comes in not to the perfectly repented, but just those who have the fact of repentance and have the start of faith. No one will ever be sorry enough (laughs) for the things they've done wrong to actually atone in any way for what they've done wrong. So here's here's what people say to me. I don't know whether my faith is good enough. Let me just clear that one up too. And this is kind of a bad thing, so you need to listen. If you're worried about your faith not being good enough, it's about pride. And as humble and, and in a way despairing or modest as you want to seem to be, you're really saying, okay, I have to... I have to get good enough. I have to be pure enough. I have to be faithful enough so Jesus Christ can give me his spirit. That is not, that is not recognizing it's a gift. The only requirement for the gift of the Holy Spirit is need for the Holy Spirit. The only requirement for the gift of the Holy Spirit is hunger for the Holy Spirit. My friends, receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is a gift. Eternal life is a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift. 
Your faith receives it. It doesn't earn it. It can't. This is the foundation of a spirit-filled church. This is the foundation of a church that is the dwelling place of God. We will never get to where we earn his presence. But he gives his presence to us freely as a gift. We don't contribute to it. Again, grace is not a commodity. Grace is not a thing. Grace is the heart of God. God is grace and grace is God. And it's time you and I just stop trying to contribute and just begin to receive. We can do this. Don't you see? Well, so let's look at this gift of the Holy Spirit. Talked about the gift, the grace by itself. But let's talk about this specific gift. And, you know, this is a momentous statement. He didn't just preach it during this sermon, but he also wrote a couple of letters to some other churches. Now, in this sermon, though, he makes this tremendous promise. He says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. Can I, before I move another step in this, will you not connect this to how you receive your salvation? You receive it not because of the purity of your faith, but the fact of your faith. Can you not stop right now and see Peter is saying, in the same way you received your salvation, now receive the Holy Spirit. Not for the purity of your faith, but just the fact of your faith that says, this is the gift of God, and it's for me. And it's for us as a church. Peter's saying here, it's not just to those who are there listening, it's to us who are far off as well. We can come into the presence of God right now and receive His Holy Spirit. He says it a little differently in his second epistle. One of my favorite writings of Peter is 2 Peter 1, verse 4, where he says, through God's great and precious promises. This is the greatest of promises in a way that the Father's gift would be the Holy Spirit to us. But look what happens when we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, you contribute nothing you just say, I need this. I can't live without this. I found no one really lets the Spirit work and operate till they realize they cannot do it otherwise. But here's what Peter says. The gift of the Holy Spirit puts you in the place where you participate in the divine nature. What, what is the Holy Spirit? Well, he's the very glory of God. He's the lifeblood of God. You see, in a way, this whole promise is bigger than we can describe. The very glory of Jesus Christ floods into your life by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus is your Savior, now His Spirit and His glory is in your presence, has united His glory to your life. I mean, you are getting something Moses wanted to have and didn't have. Moses said, show me your glory. What he's really saying is, I, I want your glory to come into my life. I want to see it. You know what God had to say to Moses? You can't. It'll kill you. Your little bitty soul would crack under the strain of my glory. So what God did was he let him see the gleam of the brightness of God's glory, but from the back door, from the back side. He had to hide him in the cleft of the rock, and then he, he let him see. He said, I'll let my hind parts go by you. Now, I, I don't know exactly what this means, Except this, I know that he, God was saying to Moses, you can't take my glory. When Isaiah even got a glimpse of God in the temple, do you remember what he said? Woe is me, 
and, and woe is me. That, that, that's not like he's just making an, uh, 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 a grammatical interjection here. He, he is undone. His words can't even describe how undone he is. <laughs> One writer said it this way, I feel unzipped. I feel I'm being unbuttoned. I'm unraveling. Why? For my, eye, my eyes have seen the king. The king is here, and in even getting this close, I feel like I'm coming apart. Why am I telling you this stuff? I'm telling you this because what they wanted is now the gift. What Moses longed for and couldn't have, what Isaiah got even a glimpse of and almost fell apart. This is what Peter says is the promise of the Father, the grace and the gift of the Father right now. The glory of God, his face, his royal presence. In the Old Testament, it was called his Shekinah glory, the cloud of God. It only dwelt in the Holy of Holies, only in the temple behind a veil over the Ark of the Covenant. There's only one person who could go back there. There's only one person who could get there. And it was supposedly the holiest person in all Israel. Now, I mean, the high priest had the highest position. And let me tell you something. If you don't know this, he would spend days just trying to get himself holy because he was so afraid of going into that presence. And he would go back there with a blood atonement. He would sprinkle incense everywhere so that his eyes wouldn't and couldn't behold things that could kill him. He had bells on the tassels on his robe so just in case he did something he wasn't supposed to do, they would know if he, they didn't hear the bells, he had died. Why was the presence of God so fatal to people? Well, because the Bible depicts the glory of God as fatal to people because of His holiness and our sinfulness. God, because He's completely pure, because He's completely holy, He's completely just. Everything He is and does and thinks centers on what is good and what is holy and what is just and what is pure. That's why He does what He does is because that's who He is. But you think about yourself, I think about myself, we think about ourselves. I don't center on what is good and holy and just and pure. I have to admit to you, I love to think about what's going to make me happy. What's going to make me comfortable? I might, I mean, just to be very honest, and I, I, I say this, even knowing the scriptures, I'll take into consideration what's good or what's true or what's holy. But I struggle with what's good or true or holy if it's going to make me uncomfortable, if it's going to cost me. So let's be honest. What do you center on? Why do you make the decisions you make? Why do you, why do, you do what you do? Isn't it for your own comfort? Isn't it for your own happiness? And here is God. He's centering on what is good and what is true, what is beautiful, what is right, what is lovely. In a sense, we're talking about almost two planets in a way. So when you have two planets that are centered on the same thing, you have harmony. But when you have two planets that come together and they have two different centers, then you're talking about a cataclysm. You're talking about, you're talking about destruction. So when a holy God and human beings who make everything revolve around their own pride and themselves come together, when a holy God comes in the presence of sinful man, there's a trauma, there's a cataclysm, there's a clash. When Moses said, show me your glory, God said, I can't. Though Moses need, needed the presence of God 
and, and there was a sense that human beings were built for it. And he knew that the presence and the face of God would satisfy something deep in his soul. He still, he couldn't have it. In the Bible, whenever it says, come into his presence with singing, that's a very relative command because you can only, you can only come into his presence in a very relative way and, and not die. See, they could come into the outer courts, but nobody could go into the presence of God except that poor high priest who came in with his knees knocking. But here's Peter. This is why I gave you that whole biblical, theological background because you've got to understand how audacious this word is. You and me now have capacity that Moses and Isaiah never had. And we're not taking advantage of it. We're not realizing the full extent of it. He's saying through His great and precious promises, we are made partakers of the divine nature. What Moses longed for, every believer has. What Isaiah was undone by, now indwells your believing heart. Through receiving Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord because He is the real high priest, because He is the final sacrifice. You see, when Jesus atoned for our sins, the veil was ripped and the barrier between the presence of God and the people was gone because Jesus is the door. And when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the very presence of God, the presence that was fatal, becomes your life. And the Holy Spirit comes in. And this is, a, this is an amazing thing. You get the joy of the Lord. He has enough joy, the Holy Spirit has enough joy to set a whole kingdom laughing. Why not? God is the center of joy. The Holy Spirit with his absolute purity, his boundless love and dynamic energy and strength, he comes in and we're never the same again. Don't you see? This is radical. This is the root of the church. This is what the church is founded on and built on. This is what the people responded to. Now, there's just one more thing. I know I've told you a lot, but there's one more thing. You can't have something like that come into your life without turmoil. I mean, it's, it, it is an amazing reality. The glory of God comes in. The joy of the Lord comes in. There's the laughter of the Spirit of God. There's the release of burdens by God taking the burdens on Himself for you. But you see, now you have a clash. And something of turmoil. See, if God, there are many of us who have said, God, if you're my Savior, if my sins are forgiven and you accept me and all these great things are true, why are all these problems still happening to me? Some have even said this to me. If the Holy Spirit is coming to my life like this, why does it seem to be taking so long for me to get any better? Why in some ways do I feel like I'm actually doing worse? Am I really a Christian? Well, let's just let's settle it this way, okay? For something of this kind of power and magnitude to come into your life, it doesn't just sneak in. If you think of the Christian life as one unbroken, smooth road of peace from here on in, look out. My friends, when God's presence comes into your life full of selfishness, the, your life full of selfishness, but He's bringing His love full of power with your anxiety. You're going to feel the clash. Are you going to give in to his power? Are you going to give in to your anxiety? Are you going to 
continue in your selfishness and just say God's power is supposed to resource my selfishness? Or are, are you going to surrender to his power and his love? I mean, it has to happen. There will be a clash. The haze eventually will clear out. There's this, this one thing to know. Somebody says, if God is a loving God, why is it he has shown me so many bad things about my life? Why is it that everything is going like this? Well, listen, remember who he is. He is light and he is love. He is wise and he is holy. There's this tremendous quote I got out of C.S. Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. He says, you got to be careful when you ask the living God into your life. You really have to have repented of the life you had before because when he comes in, Lewis says, in awful and surprising truth, we are objects of his love. You ask for a loving God, you have one. The great spirit, God, you invoked is present. Now listen to every word. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way. Not with the cold philanthropy of a conscientious magistrate. But he is the consuming fire himself. The love that made the world persistent as the artist's love for his work. As provident and venerable as a father's love for a child. Jealous, inexorable, exacting as love between the sexes. Yes, God has come in with His love. It's a holy love. It's a powerful love. And it's going to renovate you and it's going to remake you. But nobody ever renovates someplace without a lot of dust and a lot of dirt and a lot of inconvenience without it getting uglier before it gets more beautiful. Right, that's normal. How can you expect it to be any other way? Trust Him though. You trust in Him But recognize when something like this comes into your life, there's going to be a cloud of dust. So you trust Him. And there's going to be renovation. There's going to be demolition. There's going to be dust. But trust Him. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. You invited something bigger than you can imagine into your life. You invited glory. You invited beauty. You invited truth. And he's persistent. Repent and believe. Repent and trust. And receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. You contribute nothing, but you receive everything. In Jesus' name, amen.